Well, I'm not afraid to say it. Good morning. Thank you. I uh, imagine I will be saying this just about every week, uh, but the first story that we're going to look at this morning is one of my favorite stories in Mark. It just uh, says so much about our Lord, about His personality, what He's like. Turn to uh, Mark 2. This story, in fact, both the stories that we're looking at this morning are in the context of the growing opposition of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, starting with verse 1 of chapter 2, this whole section goes through verse 6 of chapter 3, where these guys get together and they finally decide that, that it's necessary for them to kill Jesus. So in this context, we just see that growing t- tension, the conflict, uh, the, the arguments between them. But within that context, each one of these stories tells us something new about our Lord, something new about his attitude toward us, something new about his, his character, what he wants to do. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 2. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, even at the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son or my child, your sins are forgiven. Well, let's... uh, Set the stage a little bit here. If you remember last week, Jesus came, started going to the synagogues where he could explain the word to people, where he could teach them. While he was in the synagogue, uh, a demon-possessed man started shouting. Jesus delivered the man, or took the demon out of the man, and word got out. Crowds started showing up from everywhere. Everybody wanted to see the show. Everybody wanted to see this, this new healer. People were coming to be healed. Others were coming just to watch. Nobody was coming to listen. Nobody was coming to really hear what he had to say, to obey him. Verse 38 of chapter 1, we're told that when Jesus saw that all of these crowds were were getting in the way of him teaching, of him doing what he had come to do, he said, let's get out of here. Let's go someplace else where I can teach because that's what I came to do. The passage last week ended with the crowds being so large that Jesus couldn't even get into the cities, much less into the synagogues where he could teach. Well, what we've got going on now is he's back in a city. He's in Capernaum, and he's in somebody's house, uh, probably Peter's house. And look what's happening. People are gathered there for him to teach. the, The word synagogue means the gathering place. And even though he couldn't go into the synagogues, he has a gathering, a synagogue right there in this house. It's packed out. People are listening to him. We're told that he is speaking the word to him. That's what he wanted to do. Finally, they're paying attention. Finally, they're listening. He's finally getting a chance to do what he came for. He's explaining the word to people. And they're understanding it. And it's touching their hearts. And they're being set free. This is what he wanted to do. As he's teaching these people, he notices that some of them are starting to look around. Something's distracting, and pretty soon he can hear the noise too, the scratching noise coming from the ceiling. And in a few minutes, there's pieces of plaster falling off of the ceiling, and the first couple of rows of people are jumping up and trying to 
brush the dust off of their, their robes and their beards and their hair. Probably the first couple rows was filled with the uh, scribes who had commandeered the places of honor. And here are these scribes jumping up covered with chalk, looking irritated. About now, Peter, or whoever owned the house, is starting to get more than a little bit upset, wondering, what are they doing to my house? You know, these faces pop down and through the hole and look around and then go back up and start tearing away again. Studman suggested at this time Peter was wondering if his homeowner's insurance was going to cover this. Ron pointed out that uh, the fact that Jesus was there probably means that it wouldn't because most policies do not cover acts of God. <laughs> but anyway, people are getting annoyed. Uh, they're, they're getting perturbed. They're, they're getting dirty. They're getting upset. These people are totally thoughtless. They're coming in. They're ripping this guy's house apart. They're, they're disrupting this perfectly good meeting. And as this mattress is coming down, everybody's looking at Jesus thinking, what's he going to do? And I hope he blasts these guys. I hope he yells at them for what they're doing. This is just outrageous. And Jesus had to be upset. He is finally getting the chance to do what he came to do. And these bozos come along and mess everything up. So as that mattress hits the ground, Jesus looks at the guy and says, What do you think you're doing? Man, where do you get off coming in and messing my meat? I had important things to say here today. Man, if I wanted to heal you, I would have made an appointment. Now get out of here. Right on, Jesus. I'll read it again. That's That's not what he said. He looked down at him. I imagine him having an amused smile on his face. With love in his eyes, he said, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's no consternation. There's no sense of disapproval at all. In fact, we're told that he saw their faith. He was pleased with these guys. You know, where, where others saw impudence and thoughtlessness, Jesus saw bold faith. Where others were worried about vandalism, Jesus was worried about a life, a man. He saw straight through to what was important. A roof can be repaired. In fact, in those days, the roofs were made out of uh, just twigs, brush kind of packed together, then covered on both sides with mud, and that mud was allowed to dry. Jesus and his disciples could fix it in a matter of hours. You know, after all, he was a carpenter. But even if the house had been trashed, even if the whole city had been trashed. What was important was a life laying there in front of him. Jesus, it says when, when uh, Jesus saw him laying there, he said to the man, child, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now think about that. Here's this guy, paralyzed, completely paralyzed, lowered down on a mattress. His friends had just carried him across town on a mattress. That's hard to do, to carry a grown man on a mattress across town. They get to this place, and it's all packed out. They can't get in. So they muscle the guy on to the roof. Now, that must have been exhausting for them, but it must have been terrifying for this guy. Getting lifted up there, not sure whether he was going to slide off. When they get on the roof, they tear a hole in the roof, hoping that the guy downstairs doesn't own a shotgun. They get a hole in the roof, they lower him down. Jesus looks at him and says, My child, your sins are forgiven. The guys on the roof are probably saying, Wait a minute, isn't he going to heal him? 
Does he think we dragged him all the way here for him to say that? And the guy laying on the ground is probably looking up saying, <clears throat> excuse me, I, uh, I don't mean to uh, sound ungrateful, but is that all you're going to do? You know, I, I get the feeling that Jesus is, is, is toying with them. He knows he's going to heal them. But he also knows he's got something more important on the agenda. Something more important that he wants to accomplish. He wants to teach them something. He wants to reveal something to them about himself. Again, it was then he saw their faith that he made this decision. Jesus always responds to faith by revealing himself, by showing something more of himself. And he saw these guys' faith. In the midst of their difficulty, they were looking to him for help. And they weren't giving up. They got to the, to the house and saw that it was, it was full of people. I'm sure their hearts sink. But they didn't just say, oh well, he probably wouldn't have done anything anyway. They didn't just say, well we tried, it's not our fault we failed. If Jesus had really cared, it would have been easier to get to. It's his fault, it's not our fault. And gone home and, and stewed in their, in their self-pity. Now they weren't going to let anything stop them. They were going to get to Jesus one way or another. No difficulty, no discouragement, no disillusionment was going to stand in their way. Now so often when we bring our needs to the Lord, we tell Him about Him, and nothing happens right away, or things don't seem to be going our way, we don't see an immediate response, we give up. We blame God, we quit. See, that's because we really don't trust Him. We don't really believe that He's going to do anything. We don't really believe that He cares us that about us that much, that His heart is that tender toward us, that He really is going to love us. He really does hear us. Because if we really believe that, we'd be like these guys. Faith doesn't give up. Faith trusts the one in whom the faith resides. Faith doesn't give up and go someplace else because it knows there's no place else to go. When he saw this kind of faith in them, he teaches them something about himself. He reveals one of the most essential truths to them. But again, that wasn't what they were looking for. That wasn't what they were expecting. That wasn't what they were wanting. My guess is at this point they were, they were kind of frustrated. But by the time they left, they were filled with, with worship and awe at the glory of God. Something had happened. They had seen something far beyond what they expected to see. Something that no one had ever seen before. They were filled with joy and delight. You see, it's often when we come to God with a need, hurting, desperately pleading with Him for, for, for our need, for, for healing, for the restoration of a, of a relationship with a spouse or a friend or, or a child. And nothing happens. Nothing goes our way. It doesn't get better. The pain stays. We, we, we don't get healthier. The sickness hangs on. The person keeps hurting us. And we don't think we can take the anguish any longer. And we wonder where God is. Why He doesn't listen. See, it's in the midst of this context that God often teaches us the most profound things about Him about who He is, about how much He loves us. 
He teaches us things that touch us deeply, that there's absolutely no other way of seeing, no other way of learning. Nobody could tell you these things. He has to show you himself. Uh, Last Easter, there was an article in the Statesman right on the front page, Clinging to the Cross. I think it's the best article a statesman has ever run. The story of, of Lauren Vickers and the death of her husband, Kevin. And, and the story accurately describes just the, the, the fear of being left with five small children, the pain of losing her husband. It describes the, the intense pleading with God and the prayers. It describes the confusion and the, the questioning when God did not spare her husband's life, didn't deliver him, when Kevin died. Let me read from the uh, end of that article. This is Lauren speaking. She says, I've seen God work in ways I've never experienced before. I know he is real from the depths of my heart. I wish Kevin were here with me to share our future, but the best thing that ever happened to me was to have Kevin taken home. No circumstance in the world can shake my faith in Christ now, and that's more valuable to me than having a husband. See, God showed her things that we can't understand. Things that that her words only hint at. Those don't explain what she learned, what she's feeling, what she's been through. We can't know that, but she knows it. And knowing that, she wouldn't trade it even to have her husband back. Because God showed himself to her in a way that's indescribable. He revealed things in a way that, that no one else could explain. He touched her deeply in a way that she can't communicate to other people. And that is God's heart. That's his desire, is to communicate, to show us, to reveal himself to us. Well, let's look at what he showed these guys, starting in verse 6. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. He looked around and he saw these scribes. And these guys weren't saying anything, but what they were thinking was all over their faces. I mean, he knew exactly what they were thinking. They were thinking, this is blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins. That's God's prerogative alone. Nobody else can forgive sins. So Jesus says to them, okay, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your mattress and go home. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say? Because in fact, the easier one to do would be to heal him. Forgiving sins is much harder. In fact, these guys were right. Only God has the authority. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus asked them, which is easier to say? Anybody can say, 
Your sins are forgiven. In fact, people say it all the time. People say, oh, don't worry about it. You're only human. It's no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. God doesn't worry about sin anymore. That's Old Testament stuff. That's, that, that, that's primitive religion. God doesn't care about sin. They say, there is no such thing as sin. So why should you feel guilty? There's no guilt. Well, where do people have the authority to say that? Where do people get off forgiving sins? Only God has that authority. And Jesus, to demonstrate He has that authority, He turns to the paralytic and He says, Get up. Pick up your mattress and go home. The guy gets up and he picks up his mattress and he walks out of there. And this wasn't any weak healing. The guy doesn't kind of stagger toward the door and everybody helps him as he walks. Now he gets, reaches down, picks up a heavy, awkward mattress, throws it over his shoulders, and people get out of his way, and he walks out of there. Everybody's amazed. Um, what did Jesus reveal about himself to this man and his buddies? What did Jesus show them? Well, for one thing, what he pointed out to them was that the essential need, the deep need, the primary need, was to have their sins forgiven. You see, the quality of our lives is not determined by, by what goes on out here, by the externals. That material wealth, physical health, having a loving spouse, having responsible and healthy children, having a, a, a challenging and rewarding career, having a new car, a new house, having intelligence, youth, everything going your way. You know, these things are nice, I'm sure, but they don't touch us deep inside. They don't give us peace. They can't give us contentment. So you can have any of these things. You can have all of these things, and they don't erase the nagging, hollow pain, self Doubt that's created by guilt, by sin in our lives. And on the other side, if your sins are forgiven and you know it, then you can do without any of these things. You can do without all of them and be at peace, be content, be satisfied. Our world is full of strong, healthy bodies that house shriveled, dead, bleeding spirits. And I think of, of Johnny Erickson. She's a, a, a young woman who is confined to a wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down, but she is so full of, of life and joy in the spirit. She says she would love to get out of that wheelchair, to be able to hug someone, to be, to be able to walk. She wouldn't trade that. She wouldn't trade the life and ministry that God has given her for any of that. You see, the only way to have peace and contentment is to have our sins forgiven. To have the guilt cleansed and removed and released. And the only one that has authority to forgive our sins is Jesus Christ. No one else can. Nothing else can. That's the message that we're going to come back to in the next story as well. But as, as 
important as that message is, as, as essential as that lesson is for really finding peace, and contentment, finding life, as powerful and wonderful a lesson as that is, it's not all that Jesus showed them. It's not all that he revealed. It's only part of the picture. Notice how Jesus used the opposition of the scribes, what they were thinking, and he turned it around into an opportunity to teach. Jesus does this all the way through this section. The, the, the scribes or the Pharisees will come with a challenge, and Jesus will take that challenge and make it into an opportunity to reveal himself. Well, what did he reveal here? Well, they were accusing him of claiming to be God, because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, in essence, says, well, you're right, only God can forgive sins. But in order that you might know that the Son of Man, now that's a messianic title from, from Daniel, it says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he's saying basically that I am the Messiah. And to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins, he said to the man, get up and walk. Jesus was not just a compassionate, thoughtful, generous, kind man. He was that. But the message, the greater message, the deeper message, was here is the Messiah. Here is God incarnate. This is what God is like. This is how God looks at us. This is how God treats us. This is what God likes to see. People who come to Him no matter what the cost. People who are straightforward and honest about their need and that aren't going to let anything keep them from coming to Him. What we have here is, a, is God Himself demonstrating Himself what his character is, what his attitude is. Well, let's look at the uh, next story just to see a little more of God, a little more of his attitude. Starting in verse 13. It says, And he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw, the, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that he was reclining at table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, back in verse 13, we see that Jesus went back to teaching. Here he is, he's teaching again. You know, the, the interruption came in the midst of his teaching. And his response was to, to trust God, to submit to his Father, to, to, to respond to this, quote, interruption. But as soon as it's over, he's back to teaching. You know, the way Jesus handles interruptions is, is so important. It's so important for us to learn. He seems to always receive those interruptions with, with, with humor, 
even with, with a sense of, of interest and delight. It's because he knew that his agenda, his schedule, was in his father's hands. And that his father's plans were good. That his father and he are on the same team. They're not working at cross purposes. God wasn't trying to undermine him, to sabotage his his happiness in life. Wasn't trying to, to destroy his effectiveness as a teacher, as a minister. In fact, God was designing, was engineering these events to make him that much more effective. And Jesus looked at these things, these, quote, interruptions, to see just what opportunity the Father had engineered. What was Jesus teaching before this man was lowered down? We don't know. We don't know what he was teaching. I'm sure it was important. I'm sure it was vital stuff. But what we have recorded for us is the interruption is the lesson that came out of what God threw into Jesus' life. C.S. Lewis made a profound observation. He said, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. And what one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. You see, our Father is not trying to sabotage us. He's not trying to ruin us. He's not trying to derail us and rob us of fulfillment in life. He's on our side. He loves us and He loves to give us treats. And He does that by bringing things into to our lives that we call interruptions, that we call distractions that he calls opportunities to teach us, opportunities to demonstrate his love to us, to demonstrate his power through us and his love through us. Several years ago, Ron and Cherry Gonzalez were heading out for a much-needed vacation. They're on their way to California to see relatives. Got about halfway there and the car broke down. So they got it towed into a, a garage and the mechanic looked at it and rubbed his hands together and it became obvious that uh, this was going to be a long delay. Now here they are on a, on a much needed vacation. They're finally getting a break. They're pouring their life into ministry and, and they finally get a chance to get away and get restored and so they don't burn out. Something like this happens. You know, thanks a lot, God. But that wasn't the attitude they took. They knew God was on their side, that God wasn't sabotaging them, that God has good plans. So they looked around to see what opportunity God was providing. And as they sat in the office, the wife of the mechanic and Cherry began a conversation. And as they talked and became friends, Cherry had an opportunity to share the gospel with her, and she was ready to hear it. She was ready to respond. And even after the vacation, they kept corresponding and, and Cherry had a chance to build this new believer up in the Lord. You know, what a, what, what a treat to be able to love this woman like that, to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with her and to have her ready to hear it and wanting to hear it. See, God designs our lives not to rob us, not to, to frustrate us, not to, to make us miserable but to get us out of our narrow little boxes that we place ourselves in and we trap ourselves in so that we're frustrated and discontent 
and to open us up to bigger things, more important things, to really learning how to love, to really seeing his power released through us. You know, what a freedom, what a, what a, what a delight it is to view life that way. That the things that our Father brings into our life are not distractions, are not interruptions, they're opportunities to see his love, to see his power. They're, 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 they're designed and engineered opportunities to lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in the process, to teach us where life, what life can be like, to fulfill us in the process. Again, we so quickly forget that. But back to our story. Jesus was walking by the tax office and he sees Levi there. Now, Levi was also known as Matthew in other parts of Scripture, the same guy that wrote the first book in the New Testament. And Jesus is walking by the tax office. He sees Matthew sitting in there and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. So what? Big deal. I mean, why do they put this, this in here? Uh, we, we have 12 disciples. We don't see how all of them were called. Why do we see this one? Is this just to show that, that God likes accountants? Well, you got to understand what a tax collector was in those days. A tax collector was an independent contractor. He was somebody that the government gave permission to get as much money out as pe- out of people as he could. And he had to turn over a certain percentage of that, a certain cut of that, to the government. And these tax gatherers could get that money using any means that they saw fit. Now, the people who had power, the people who had wealth, the people who had influence, these tax gatherers couldn't get at. So they had to make all of their money off of the people who had no power who had no influence, the, the working people, the poor people, the, the unprotected people. And so they would muscle these people and they would take their money and they became obscenely wealthy. Tax gatherers in this time period were racketeers. They were gangsters. And so Jesus coming, walking along and calling this guy would be roughly the equivalent of Jesus walking down the street seeing a drug pusher leaning against his Eldorado saying, follow me. And the guy followed him. See, we're told that Matthew got up. Uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't just sit there. you got to get up. you got to take a step. Matthew got up and followed Jesus. He left everything behind. He left all the wealth. He left all of the protection of his organization and of, of the government. He, he left all of his friends and associates and he joined a group of people, a group of fishermen, whom he had been ripping off for the last several years, from whom he could expect absolutely no affection at all. You know, this was, from a practical perspective, a very foolish and foolhardy decision. His friends probably thought he was nuts. His parents probably said, son, what are you doing here? As Matthew made his his lists of pros and cons in making this decision, I'm sure his con list was a mile long. But on the pro side, it was just one thing that outweighed it all. Here is the one 
who can give me peace. Here's the one who can touch me inside, who can forgive my sin, who, who can erase that, that gnawing self-condemnation, that self-hatred, that guilt. Here's the one who can give me freedom, give me real life. See, Matthew knew what he was walking away from. He knew what he was giving up. He knew he could never go back. But he also knew that he was getting a bargain. And that the protection, the wealth, the, the influence was a cheap price to pay for having the Messiah want him, for having the opportunity to walk with the Lord. And Matthew saw what we've been talking about, that, that the quality of our life doesn't come from out here and the, the, the externals of life. The quality of life comes from the condition of our heart. And ultimately, the quality of life is determined by walking with the one who can meet our deepest longings and desires. So, Matthew follows him. The first thing Matthew does is he throws a party for all of his friends. And Jesus comes to this party to meet his friends. And there's a whole crowd of these this underworld-type all these tax gatherers and sinners. And Jesus is partying with them. He's enjoying them. He's eating and drinking and joking and, 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 and having fun with them. And the scribes look at this and they say, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, if Jesus had been standing up lecturing to them and showing how disgusted he was with this type of people and this type of lifestyle, the, the, the scribes would have been nodding their head in approval. That's right on, Jesus. But Jesus actually looked like he was having fun. Like he was comfortable with these people. Like he liked being with them. And this blew their circuits. And so they, 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 they said to the, the, his disciples, what kind of teacher is this? What's going on here? He's eating and drinking and carrying on with, with tax gatherers and sinners. And Jesus overheard this. But notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't scold them for calling these guys sinners. He doesn't say, how dare you call them sinners? They're just misunderstood. They're just socially deprived. They've been, they've, been, they, 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 they've not had the opportunities that they've needed in life. Now Jesus looks at them and says, yeah, you're right. They are sinners. Jesus was perfectly comfortable with calling them sinners because that's what they were. And in fact, these guys he was sitting with and eating with, they were comfortable with that name too. That's what they were. They knew they were sinners. And that's why Jesus' response is so appropriate. He says to the, the scribes, it's not those who are healthy and strong who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. In essence, what Jesus is saying, I came for the people who knew they are sick, who, who want a doctor. I come to the people who know they're sinners, who are ready to, 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 to be healed, to be forgiven. My wife, Becky is an oncology nurse. I mean, she works with cancer patients. And she tells me story after story of people who've denied their illness, who've refused to face the fact that they're sick until it's too late. She told me of one woman who had a, uh, uh, had breast cancer and she refused to face it until the tumor was enormous. And in fact, it had, it had started to ulcerate and break through the skin and she finally came in. It was too late. Uh, the, the, the cancer had spread through her lymphatic system. Where if she had come in early, when, when, when the lump first appeared, 
that could have been treated and she would in all probability be enjoying a, a, a normal, healthy life right now. Where instead, all that she has to look forward to is, is an almost certain and painful death. It's the patient who knows they are sick that will come to a doctor. It's the one who knows they are a sinner that will come to the great physician, the one who can forgive their sin, who can heal their hearts and heal their spirits. But we find ourselves in just as pathetic a state of denial as this woman with, with, with breast cancer. We don't want to face the fact that we are sinners. The evidence is there. The evidence is, is compelling. I mean, we don't have peace inside. We find ourselves blowing up the people we love and treating them cruelly. We find ourselves controlled by sins in our lives. We find ourselves following one false hope after another, looking for some kind of satisfaction and never finding it. But we don't want to face the fact that the root is guilt. The root is that we are sinners. We'll do anything but face that. We're like the scribes who wanted to pretend that they were okay. They didn't need Jesus because to admit that they needed Him would be to admit that they were sinners, to admit that they had a cancer. So they would keep Him at arm's length. And we do the same thing, refusing to admit that we are sinners. So the cancer grows and it kills us. Well, what have we we've seen this morning? What have we learned about Jesus? We, For one, we've seen how Jesus handles interruptions. Uh, and we've learned how we can handle interruptions. We've seen Jesus' unflappable good humor that arises out of his confidence in his Father. We've seen that in, in Jesus' eyes, buildings and meetings and agendas aren't nearly so important as human lives human needs. We've seen that Jesus' response to faith is to reveal more of Himself, is to touch us deeply in a way that is indescribable, that we wouldn't trade for the world. We've seen how little it mattered to Jesus what the uptight religious people of His day thought about Him. He was going to express His love to people no matter who it bothered no matter who was put off by it. But really, I think the heart of these stories that we've looked at here in Mark have to do with our sin and God's attitude toward us. You see, God is not disgusted with us. He's not looking at us hatefully. He's not turning His nose up and, and, and turning away in disgust. No, Jesus is into sinners. He likes hanging around with the likes of you and me. We don't make him uncomfortable at all. What makes him uncomfortable is people who deny, who refuse to face that they are sinners. Because it's those people who end up hating him for telling them the truth. As they pretend that they're, they're either there's no such thing as sin or, or, or they're above it all. And when they hear Jesus' words, they hate him. Because they don't want to face the truth. But as we face the truth. As we listen to the diagnosis and we say, yes, it's true. 
We are sinners. We do need a doctor. We do need healing. We do need forgiveness. And face all that that means, all that sin is doing in our lives, how it's robbing us of joy, how it's shredding us inside, how it's destroying our relationships, how it's destroyed our future. Then we start wanting forgiveness. We start wanting healing. We start wanting release from guilt. Every bit as bad as that paralytic wanted healing. And we'll let nothing stand between us and Jesus. Nothing get in the way. No matter what the cost. We'll climb up on the roof if we have to and tear a hole. And as we're lowered down at Jesus' feet, just trusting Him, demanding nothing, we're ready to get up and to obey when He tells us to. Ready like Matthew to walk away from all of this, the security and, and the superficial things that sin provided. And as we lay there at Jesus' feet, eyes downcast, whispering, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we feel him smile. And Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we, well, I so often don't want to face myself. I think it's because when I see myself, I don't like it. I don't like me. And I assume you don't like me. Other people reject me. I assume you're going to reject me. But when I look at your face, when I look at how you treated sinners, how you enjoyed us, you, you, you were not put off. You were not uh, repulsed, but you enjoyed being around us. Lord, I'm encouraged that that's your attitude. I'm encouraged to be honest. So often, again, Lord, I uh, just let the sin stay and eat, and let the hollowness and the pain grow, rather than being ready to admit it, and to hear you forgive me. I pray for all of us that we would stop fighting, stop denying, that we'd be quick to see ourselves, quick to come to you as sinners needing mercy, but also as, as people whom you love, who you're ready to forgive and you're ready to cleanse. But I pray that this week you'd bring this lesson back to us, that as you show us ourselves, that we would come before you and we would be honest with you and we would not push you away, but would let you forgive us, would let you cleanse us, would let you make us whole and strong. Just pray all this in your name. Amen.